episode 104, The Return of the Dread Bird. When Bird and Ellsworth returned to the USA in the mid-1930s, the New York Times and William Randolph Hearst's newspapers trumpeted their achievements long and loud, as much as they could in light of the lack of interest in Bird's lack of big excitement and the naysayers' complaints about Ellsworth's transcontinental flight not being transcontinental enough for their liking. But the government remained reticent to further US claims on the territory flown over and claimed by feats of vexillological bombing. The Hughes Doctrine propounded by US government officials cut both ways. If US interests could disregard territorial claims the claimant nation didn't follow up with occupation, it couldn't expect other nations to take its own claims seriously without subsequent occupation, and no one in the government felt inclined to pay for such a project. The government advised Ellsworth how best to word and enact a claim, and sent a postmaster south with Bird, but balked at the prospect of establishing a government-funded polar administration, let alone a permanent presence in the south. Bird lectured to over a million punters in the wake of his second Antarctic expedition and netted over $200,000 in speaking fees for the effort. His Amundsonian whitewashing of the psychological and sociological problems his teams experienced at Little America did their part to erode popular assumptions that Antarctica must necessarily remain uninhabited. While still intensely interested in outcomes in Antarctica, and pressing the State Department to ratify his territorial claims on the nation's behalf at every opportunity, Byrd announced he intended eschewing further exploration, and devoting the rest of his life to fostering peace between nations. And that went really, really well for him, as the vast tracts of peace experienced during the remaining years of the 20th century illustrate. Prominent among agitators for a shift in US government policy was Charles Hyde, a former legal advisor to the State Department when it was run by Charles Hughes of Hughes Doctrine Notoriety. Hyde's influence set State Department employees to examining popular perception repercussions of Byrd's radio broadcasts from Little America. While Byrd hadn't claimed the territory Little America stood on, being in the Ross Dependency, no Commonwealth citizen, let alone employee, visited that dependency in the years since the Ross Sea Party of the ITAE, other than a hapless New Zealand bureaucrat sent south on a whaling vessel in a desperately cheap gambit to lay some claim to administration over the region. While Ellsworth got on with being extremely rich and ignoring his wife, Byrd became political, heeding advice from prominent American Nazi advocate Thomas Watson, head of international business machines, and campaigning for a sustained policy of appeasement toward Nazi Germany, which, as I mentioned earlier, played out really well as a chapter in Byrd's legacy, what with all the peace that followed everywhere the Nazis went. Two former Byrd underlings were already making plans to return to Antarctica. The dog-driving son of Amundsen's sailmaker and later Byrd's man at the sewing machine, Martin Ronnie, a noted loner among Little American Two denizens, Engineer Finn Ronnie, having found Byrd's leadership and the expedition camp followers disappointing, began negotiating a passage south with Norwegian whalers, one book has him on the cusp of purchasing a vessel for his project, with an intention of leading a five-man party from the Antarctic Peninsula along the as-yet-unseen Pacific coast to the Bay of Wales, where the ship would collect them once more. 
Meanwhile, Richard Black, another Little America II veteran, plied his civil engineering groove in the service of the Division of Territories and Island Possessions, a recently instituted adjunct to the U.S. Department of the Interior, facilitating U.S. occupation of Pacific Islands in order to meet Hughes Doctrine stipulations. The two goals of the initiative were to give American interests an uninterrupted string of U.S.-controlled airports or flying boat bases by which to span the Pacific Ocean in newly developed air routes, and to curb Japanese incursions into the region as they pressed their greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere eastward and southward from Nippon. Richard Black's efforts, following a pattern of build a runway, establish a meteorological station, develop agriculture and mechanise the fisheries, followed an imperial pattern the British recognised because they'd employed it so often and with such success everywhere they planted their highly polished and highly kickety imperial boot, albeit without the runways because aviation wasn't available to them during the building of the Big Pink Swathe. Black's success in the Pacific fair put the wind up British bureaucrats because they recognised the new kids on the block were better at being the British Empire than they had been, and what appeared to be working in the upstart's favour in the tropics might work just as well in their favour in the far south. To add to British umbrage, Black turned up on Canton in the South Pacific Phoenix Islands in March of 1938. At the time, the island was administered by a pair of British radio operators, in place since mid-1937, to follow up an order in council made in March 1937 to reassert an 1850 claim on the island archipelago based on their discovery by a London whaler aboard the Phoenix in 1824. A solar eclipse in June 1937 saw the HMS Wellington and the USN Avocet fire shots across one another's bows in a dispute over the choicest Canton Island anchorages at which to observe the astronomical event. A polite ceasefire ensued while the respective ship's commanders radioed home for orders, the requested orders returning that they should stop firing on each other and observe the damn eclipse, which they did, though in a cool diplomatic mood. Seven settler colonists from Richard Black's initiatives turned up some time after the British radio operators and started to set up shop. The British ambassador to the United States demanded the claiming stakes be pulled up and the attempt to displace Commonwealth interest in the islands be abandoned. But President Roosevelt worked US sovereignty over the islands through the political channels and Richard Black turned up with a bunch of earth-moving equipment and a division of US Marines to simplify the fuck out of anyone who tried to interfere with the process of American imperialism. And if you don't know Billy Bragg's The Marching Song of the Covert Battalions, go look it up, as it fits here a treat. The Marines raised a US flag, the earth-moving machines got to work moving earth, and Britain pretended nothing happened because acknowledging the political ramifications of what just happened didn't bear thinking about. It was while kicking ass on the US government's behalf in this manner that Black's thoughts returned to Antarctica and what might be achieved if the government afforded him similar resources and remit to get about establishing meteorological stations and runways and such. He discussed the idea with his divisional head, Ernest Groening. 
For most of the 1930s, while private expeditions constituted the US presence in Antarctica, armchair speculative geographers such as Isaiah Bowman did what they could to ensure American achievements in the South carried the best possible scope to stand their nation in good stead if the government policy ever shifted away from we make and recognise no claims in Antarctica. Governmental ears weren't deaf to entreaties to get the stars and stripes flying over the ice in an official capacity, but Antarctica remained a low political priority until the decade neared its end. Alert to the vague whispers that something must be done about Antarctica in the halls of power, Groening encouraged Black, who worked his concept into a formal memorandum they submitted up the departmental chain of bureaucrats. Meanwhile, with Wilkes an embarrassing non-starter, overshadowed by his French and British contemporaries in the far south, and doubly historically naff for his accidental war in Fiji, and trebly so for his almost bringing Britain into the civil war on the side of the Confederacy, historical geographers looked, once more, to American sealers for the historical fulcrum by which to lever the USA to the centre of the Antarctic Dialogue. Edmund Fanning, who had first-hand knowledge of Nathaniel B. Palmer's voyages and access to the widest possible tranche of documentation and testimony about Palmer, couldn't make the case for American primacy in sighting Antarctic shores in the 19th century, and a late but enthusiastic gallop along the same track didn't see Colonel Lawrence Martin fare much better. The Library of Congress became the repository of loaned or donated logbooks from the zenith of America's whaling and sealing eras, and Colonel Martin sees particularly upon Nathaniel Palmer's papers. He sought out Palmer's descendants and added his clout to their efforts to see the seal lauded as the discoverer of Antarctica, but the paperwork didn't do the job required of it. Enter United States Geological Service geologist William Herbert Hobbs, a lecturer at the University of Michigan and veteran of several expeditions to Greenland, and whose patriotism seems indistinguishable from unbridled bigotry, and whose efforts to privilege Palmer's legacy above all others led him to libraries and private collections from Stonington and Nantucket to London, Hamburg and Le Havre, chasing down skerricks of detail regarding the movements of Americans in high southern latitudes. Articles dismissing British charts as post-hoc forgeries made Hobbes a darling among Palmer advocates, Bird among them, who cited Hobbes as, quote, one of the world's greatest authorities on Antarctica, unquote. But since Bird included himself in that set, I don't think much of his appraisal of the academic. Isaiah Bowman found the venom and the methods of his contemporary embarrassing, writing of Hobbes as, quote, almost invariably under the control of a conclusion already arrived at. Unquote. In spite of his agenda-driven search to find the facts that fit that conclusion, Hobbes' publications found a ready and enthusiastic audience among American readers, and lots of why-I-nevering from his British counterparts. I don't find the evidence to demonstrate Palmer's primacy compelling, and while I don't doubt that he did cite and visit continental aspects of Antarctica early and often, the secretive documentation left behind by a skipper looking to protect his financial interests ahead of any notional future national interest in his discoveries preclude us taking his achievements as lying beyond what the paperwork demonstrates. 
Speculation falls flat in the face of annotated rock samples, cans and flagstaffs left ashore, and, later, photographs of people at identifiable landmarks saluting their national flag. Hobbs and Martin's best efforts at buttressing Palmer's legacy meant little in the 1930s, as the Hughes Doctrine played out in real politic in the Pacific, Greenland and Svalbard. By the time Hobbes' articles received their acclaim, Bird already demonstrated Antarctic occupation at a scale greater than previous expeditions credited as possible, and Rymel's BGLE showed the world that useful work could take place through the Austral winter. There was no excuse to rest solely on laurels won by happenstance encounters with landmasses in the race to kill seals and sell the resulting pelts. And to digress, even 80 years later, people are still butting heads and spreading ink and spouting verbiage to try to give their nation precedence. We're at the bicentenary of a lot of Southern Ocean expeditions, and the articles about Brownsfield, no, wait, Bellingshausen, no, wait, Palmer, and remember Wilkes, though I think if I held any association with the man, that's the exact opposite of what I'd be encouraging, are arising as the contest for the featheriest cap continues in spite of the overwhelming evidence demonstrating that no one involved in the politics of Antarctica gives a rat's ass about who saw what first, who stood where first, and whose flappy national fabric waved over and spread its magical particles of aegisism over the landscape, though never crossing bodies of salty water. With historical precedence and apparent non-starter, and Bird and Ellsworth's achievements to date insufficiently government-backed and endorsed to carry weight, Richard Black adapted Finn Ronnie's proposal for a point-to-point -point sledging journey to survey the parts of the interior that Commonwealth expeditions had only managed to chart from the sea. Black put forward the twin goals of nulling the sector model British geographers were so fond of drawing on their maps, and of consolidating national and international recognition of the USA as a nation with governmental Antarctic associations. Black who had the departmental clout to get the project moving more readily than Ronnie, sought to lead the expedition with Ronnie along as second banana. Adding to the fervour, Lincoln Ellsworth chose May 1938 to announce his plan to return to Antarctica and fly over Enderby Land, see episode 102. With France, Argentina and the Commonwealth trifecta of Britain, Australia and New Zealand, reasserting their sector-based claims, overlapping in the case of Britain and Argentina, in 1938, and Germany ramping up its interest in the South in the form of Richard's voyage aboard the Schwabenland, see episodes 99 and 100. US power brokers heeded the need to address Antarctic territorial issues. Richard Black's concept, an idea whose time had come, found traction with the federal government, and who better to head up this new American initiative, sorry, I meant century-old American initiative, because Palmer and Wilkes and so on, than Richard Evelyn Bird? Pretty much anyone is the answer to that question, but the people asking it meant it rhetorically, and the time machine's bung, so my input went ignored 80 years ago. While he was once more on the outs with President Roosevelt because of his Nazi appeasement campaigning, Bird claimed he kept getting the wrong end of the question of whether or not fascists were bad, 
because of the confusingly named multitude of alleged peace advocacy organisations, apparently working in the vein of the People's Front of Judea. But I have little sympathy for anyone who goes into bat for an organisation without understanding the goals of that organisation. Bird ended up bleeding to a friend that he needed help understanding it all, as though he wasn't a human adult with tremendous influence and privilege. I don't think he ever got the hang of who was advocating what on the behalf of whom, and Bird, in a rare show of having enough horse sense to shut his fat mouth, stopped stumping for any of the organisations he previously sought to help out with his profile and connections, in time to avoid completely losing all government traction. Bird held the ear of Cordell Hull, and kept up a constant pressure of rhetoric that America should get south and get claiming to the Secretary of State. Once Black's memorandum made it as far as the Secretary of State, Hull ensured it caught and held the attention of the President. By May 1938, after Der Deutsche Antarktische Expedition put a firework up everyone paying any attention to Antarctic matters, the ball Richard Black started rolling quickly gathered momentum in the form of four agencies with a stake in furthering US territorial and financial interests. If the State Department claimed the territory, it would fall to the Department of the Interior to administer it, while the Department of War sorted out any defence-related repercussions of expanding US territories, and the Department of the Navy ran the logistics of getting US personnel to and from any new dominion. Finn Ronnie's modest expedition proposal, already commandeered by his fellow Little America II inmate, got further knocked into the weeds in the national fervour to make good on the sterling work of previous US explorers, a century ago, and who, in the case of Charles Wilkes, weren't very good at exploring. Roosevelt wouldn't hear of a small, private expedition on Ronnie's proposed scale, or even Black's slightly more involved plans to incorporate an aircraft into the mix. Two ships heading to opposite sides of the continent was the US path forward and nothing less. Reoccupation at Little America and a new base established in the Enderby Land area claimed by Lincoln Ellsworth and reoccupied each summer would trounce anything any other nation achieved in demonstrating their occupation or administration of Antarctica. At the time that Roosevelt wanted to consult America's leading Antarctic experts, Lincoln Ellsworth was still in the South, and Finn Ronnie and Richard Black were unknown to the public, so it fell entirely to one man to act as polar consultant. Roosevelt's on-again, off-again friend, an occasional fly in the political ointment, was wheeled out, forgiven for his recent campaign of hapless and entirely accidental Nazi enabling, and Thomas Watson's more of an acquaintance and a friend, and he only really met him a couple of times, and while I pretended to like him, I wasn't really that impressed, and now I come to think of it, I think I saw the mark of the beast on him, and the Nazis are bad and I hate them. Did I do good, Franklin? And asked how much this new American Antarctic gambit might cost. The invitation to join the fun arrived in January 1939, and Bird quickly manoeuvred to take charge of the operation, offering to chuck his nascent plans for a further private expedition, and offering the Bear of Oakland at cost, in case a deal sweetener was needed. The US Navy took the ship on its books and renamed it the USS Bear, or I should say, returned it to that name, the Bear having operated as the Bear for a long time in the Arctic, before Bird added Of Oakland to its moniker, as a means to suck up to the city that sold it to him at a bargain basement price.
By mid-February, Byrd formed the hub of American Antarctic planning and activity. Keeping the press and Congress in the dark as to the scope and ambitions of the new project, funds were drawn from the four departments under falsely labelled requests, and the Coast Guard cutter Northland repositioned to Boston for refit alongside the USS Bear under the pretense of preparing to patrol the North Atlantic. A third ship, the Department of the Interior's wooden-hulled Arctic supply vessel, USMS North Star, used by the Office of Indian Affairs to supply Inuit communities in Alaska, came into the fold. It sailed to Boston via Panama, carrying 43 Malamute Huskies purchased from the Superintendent of Reindeer at Nome on the strength of a purchase order telegraphed through from Finn Ronnie, whom Bird placed in charge of land transportation procurement. With the ships in hand and the funding gradually coming available, Richard Black reported to the Department of the Interior, after a week of meetings at Bird's residence, that the summer occupation plan became a year-round occupation come colonisation project to better line up with the US application of the Hughes Doctrine in its other territorial claim operations. And a post office at each base, staffed by a US postmaster, for an indisputable and cheap official government presence on top of successive waves of geographers, geologists, meteorologists, physicists and biologists, the order of priority reflecting both pragmatic necessity and expected returns per unit of financial investment and practical effort. In a letter to Byrd, President Roosevelt mapped the agenda out plain. Quote, The most important thing is to prove a that human beings can permanently occupy a portion of the continent winter and summer, b. that it is well worth a small appropriation to maintain such permanent bases because of their growing value for four purposes. National defence of the Western Hemisphere, radio, meteorology and minerals. Each of these four is of approximately equal importance as far as we know. End quote. A resurrection of Bird's Little America, in some disarray when last visited in 1935 and likely only worse for wear after half a decade of brutal southern winters, held less appeal than starting a new base from scratch, perhaps further east to cut transit times to the geology of greatest immediate interest. David Day, writing in Antarctica, a biography, speculates that remaining in the Ross dependency might have appealed to the organisers both because of the continuity it afforded with Byrd's previous efforts and because it failed to recognise Commonwealth sovereignty over the area at a government level, where Byrd's expeditions only snubbed the former empire on a private footing. But the orders eventually cut for Byrd advocated establishing outside the Ross dependency. The committee also examined the possibility of establishing a third base on Heard Island, the actively volcanic emergence lying to Australia's southwest, above the Antarctic Convergence at 53 degrees south. The most recent mention of Heard Island in this narrative arose in episodes about the Banzari under Douglas Mawson. The Commonwealth contingent during the Banzari visit made use of accommodations established by whaling vessels and collected scientific samples neither of which carried much weight as a territorial claim basis in the late 1930s. The island's name referred to the American sealer credited with discovering it, and American sealers lived there for several years in the 19th century. 
Commonwealth geographers were accustomed to thinking of it as part of Australian territory, based on proximity, and it showed up pink on imperial maps, though Dr Paul Seipel, inducted to the planning committee for the new venture on a similar footing to Richard Black, thought this most likely because this cartographic territorial gambit never received challenge from the USA, or anyone else, but most importantly from the USA, because discovery and flags and such. Bird saw Heard Island as a possible staging point in a polar air route between southern continents, and Seipel saw it as a meteorological station site and a training and breeding ground for the sustained supply of sled dogs that a permanent US presence in Antarctica would need. The planned occupation fell by the wayside when the dearth of safe anchorages and historical accounts of difficult beach landings came to light. The preliminary reports published through the German media after Richard's expedition reached Cape Town in March curtailed the perceived need to keep the building US expedition on the down-low in the halls of power. Richard Black and Groening, among other members of the Departments of State and the Interior, testified before a Senate subcommittee seeking further funding for a US project, receiving initial funding of $10,000, with another $340,000 in the offing if it was needed. <laughs> if... One author I read in preparing my notes for this episode cites the lowball figures as being calculated as enough to draw Bird into the government fold, but insufficient to let him hoard the materials and funds already accumulated for his third Antarctic project, even suggesting that Bird might have sold the Bear of Oakland and kept the proceeds, had government funding afforded him that luxury. Either way, getting Bird involved didn't play well in the public eye. People already suspicious of Bird's motives and methods saw it as Bird further suckling at America's teat, while the working stiffs took pay cuts and the unemployed starved. Roosevelt might have played the hand dealt him better by employing Seipel, or Black, or Ronnie, in Bird's stead. But Bird held cachet among the US elite the others lacked, and Roosevelt backed the familiar horse. All three alternates would show their mettle as base leaders ere long, and Bird would leave Seipel and Black in charge of wintering bases within the year. Groening downplayed the project to the press, giving an impression that America sought only to validate past expeditions' achievements in light of German, British and Norwegian manoeuvring on the continent, and damped the story down without letting slip any of the planned colonisation strategy. With just six months in hand to get moving, the refit and alterations to the ships were already underway, and Bird pulled out all stops to get done in the available half-year, that which previously required a year and a half, not accounting that the planning needed to encompass multiple bases, and the compounding factor that the bases established needed to last longer than a single year in Antarctic conditions. It was in this half-year of frantic preparations and sly funding arrangements that Richard Byrd mounted the weirdest publicity campaign any Antarctican pulled together to that date, Byrd's Penguin Island, at the New York World's Fair. The World's Fair was a hugely successful international exhibition that attracted 44 million punters, in spite of a major war breaking out six months after it opened though this did cause problems for the pavilions of nations newly under Axis occupation. 
in spite of both previous displays of expedition artefacts and mounted penguins faring poorly. Bird let lecture tour manager Leo MacDonald talk him into leasing space at the World's Fair, wherein some penguins and expedition clothing and equipment formed the displays, and the rear admiral himself made as regular appearances as he could manage. The attempted attraction didn't attract much attention, and never became the financial success Bird hoped for. In a magnificent verbal dig, Brendan Gill, writing for the New Yorker, reported on a Wobegon Admiral Bird seated among a few equally Wobegon Antarctic penguins at a concession he had opened in the so-called amusement area. Icy burn, sir. Commendable snark in the best traditions of that publication. I want to see Bird's Penguin Island so, so much. And not as a museum piece or a photograph. Time travel offers many exciting opportunities to right past wrongs and to generate vast and intractable paradoxes, but it would be worth risking becoming my own grandfather for the opportunity to see a forlorn bird sitting dejectedly among his trinkets and mounted penguins while the foot traffic passes him by. <sighs> sweet, sweet schadenfreude. Adding to birds' woebegones, Roosevelt hadn't yet gotten the expedition funding approved. Bird spent his own coin getting the Bear of Oakland fitted with a new diesel power plant and really, really wanted that federal funding to come through. But Roosevelt was busy trying to repeal neutrality legislation in order to begin selling US manufactured arms to Britain and France, who were really, really eager to buy them, while also trying not to freak the sheep with sudden announcements about large expenditures while 10 million Americans remained out of work and the nation really didn't want to hear that Richard Bird's new pet project was taking place on the public dollar, particularly in light of Harry Bird's vocal campaigning against irresponsible government spending. With his public star already waned to a large extent, newspapers didn't have to look far to find vocal detractors ready to criticise Bird and his third Antarctic scheme. Major Al Williams wrote in the Washington News that Having apparently exhausted the advertising sponsorship of every conceivable commercial article from mattresses to candies ellipses here because I'm quoting from Lyle Rose's book and not source documents the Admiral's business becomes public business. Germany to the rescue Helmut Voltart's proclamations about German preeminence in Antarctica based on their most recent and recently returned expedition and projections about a future German base of operations on the continent, galvanised American resolve on Antarctic matters, though not in the first pass. The State Department effectively washed its hands of the project, and the House Appropriations Committee voted against expedition funding, though on a sufficiently narrow margin that Byrd stepped in to implore those concerned consider the Antarctic sector south of the Pacific, the sector closest to the USA, and the sector under greatest German threat, as coming under the Monroe Doctrine, which sought to prevent any European interference with the Americas. A second vote still saw the funds withheld. Byrd started making noises about running another private expedition. Graining stood at the cusp of postponing all further effort for that year, figuring June already too advanced to bring the materials and people together to mount a successful project, and fearing anything less than success would impose a black mark on his career with the Department of the Interior. He felt particularly concerned that orders for fur clothing and sleeping bags 
necessarily sourced from Inuit communities with the materials and skills to make the goods that wouldn't leave the entire expedition a cold-soaked mass grave, couldn't be left much later. A final push in the closing days of June off the back of Bird's repeated assurances that Roosevelt wanted the expedition to go ahead, saw the funding approved in both houses and sent to Roosevelt for signing. Prudence demanded the expedition wait a year, so she was excluded from all future meetings and became a one-line gag in a Stephen Fry monologue about Dracula 40 years on. Groening still felt they should delay, but Bird assured him that if they focused on establishing two bases and divested themselves of all other ambitions, they still had enough time to get the jump on the Germans and the Australians, who hadn't announced any expedition, but who possessed the Wyatt Earp and would likely place the competent and dogged Sir Douglas Mawson or the competent and dogged Sir Hubert Wilkins, at the head of anything they did set out to achieve in Antarctica. Groening wasn't convinced, and looked set to pull the pin until 1940, when he was summoned to the White House where Byrd, several State Department representatives, and several more senior Navy advisers stated, in no uncertain terms, that the expedition was going ahead. I don't blame Groening for his concerns, and the State Department appears to have tried to manoeuvre for all possible credit and no possible blame in the way they treated him. Byrd once again pulled political strings through his brother, Senator Harry Floodbird, to work things as Byrd saw fit, the Weasley prick. Roosevelt announced to the press that he placed Byrd in charge of the operation, and a photo op featuring Byrd pointing at Antarctica on a globe followed. To Roosevelt's relief, given he already faced a lot of backlash for not making an isolationist a stand as a lot of prominent people and organisations demanded of him in the face of the war firing up in Europe, and still carrying a lot of hate baggage from the New Deal by which he dragged his nation out of the worst of the Great Depression, the journalists enthusiastically filed their copy recounting the plan. Three ships, three permanent bases, a flight across the continent, the Monroe Doctrine upheld to keep the Germans out of the Western Hemisphere, and the territory discovered, explored, mapped and flagstruck by past Americans, incorporated under the national aegis. Roosevelt came out looking pretty darn spiffy with the four-pronged expedition agenda. Protect the Western Hemisphere, establish radio relay bases at the bottom of the world, improve meteorology reporting, and examine what mineral wealth America might extract from Antarctica. With Byrd leading the actual expedition, Roosevelt appointed Graining, Coast Guard Rear Admiral Russell Weish, Captain Charles Hardigan of the Navy, and Hugh Cumming of the State Department to a formal committee of management in place of the ad hoc committee already running the show on the QT for the past four months. The expedition didn't receive its own name, but rather the initiative of which Bird's voyage comprised the boots on the ground element became the United States Antarctic Service heralding long-term national ambitions in the South. The heroic age is generally marked as ending with Shackleton's death, and I tend to think of the intervening two decades as the amateur patch, and I don't mean to seem disparaging in the use of a term that denotes non-professional, except in the cases of Ellsworth and Bird, both of whom I'll disparage every day and twice on Sundays, till the day I meander off on a tangent forget what I was talking about. What was I talking about? And some people were getting paid for their efforts, such as Wilkins and Balkan, 
and the Germans under Richer. But the Schwabenland sailed under commercial pretenses and kept its Antarctic agenda hidden until the last possible moment. Now, the age of big government in Antarctica arrived with some considerable fanfare and many headlines, as was the style at the time. The US federal government was heading south with explicit goals. The PR campaign didn't play exclusively in favour of Roosevelt's new initiative. Byrd's self-aggrandising mean came in for criticism, and the expedition received its share of broadsides as a waste of time and resources. Byrd, having already spent $200,000 out of his own pocket getting the Bear of Oakland refitted and making preliminary purchases of equipment and consumables, railed at the strictures of the $350,000 ceiling set for the expedition, but Graining, still advocating they wait a year and get off on the best possible footing, responded that blowing the budget and asking forgiveness later was out of the question. The Department of the Interior intended holding Byrd to the projections he made in April. Bleating that he was expected to mount a million-dollar expedition on a third of that money and prophesying that the expedition might not be capable of retrieving its overwinterers because of tight-fisted, number-crunching crumb-nunches, Byrd, once more, wheedled at the political teat, encouraging Roosevelt to write to the heads of the four involved departments to request they pull their fingers out and help pull the expedition, facing financial disaster, out of the hole Byrd continued strenuously digging. Roosevelt knew Byrd and his coterie of chums well, and likely knew who the rear admiral tapped and for how much, and kept the government's input lowball rolling. Adding to the growing tension, the Coast Guard cutter Northland received a retasking in light of the growing war clouds over Europe, staying in the north for the foreseeable. At this point in proceedings, Groening accepted a Roosevelt appointment to govern Alaska, still two decades away from the shift from a territory to a state, going on to become one of the better respected leaders to hold that position in spite of his not coming from there. Groening had nothing further to do with the United States Antarctic Service, and I can only imagine that coming as a tremendous relief to him. Isaiah Bowman, at that point president of Johns Hopkins University, chaired a Washington DC meeting to map out the expedition's scientific program, but the overriding enthusiasm for geographic discovery and territorial claiming saw geologist Alton Wade landed with too little time, too fuzzy a focus, and too few resources to pull together a coordinated program tying the scientific endeavours of all the moving parts of the expedition together. Professor Elton Wade, while taken south as part of Byrd's previous expedition initially as a stevedore and later as a dog driver, wrote up the data from the fieldwork he took part in to earn his doctorate through Johns Hopkins University. He was teaching at Miami University in Ohio, when tapped to organise the scientific contingent of the new project. Among his first appointments, two of his graduate students joined the expedition in a mentorship program Wade carried forward in all his subsequent Antarctic ventures, many geologists getting a career kickstart from Wade's commitment to this initiative. With his own financial reserves strained and government money coming through slowly and short of the necessary volumes, Bird did turn to private enterprise and his cadre of rich buddies to make the books balance, as Roosevelt knew would happen. In addition to his Penguin Island duties at the New York World's Fair, 
and expedition duty delegation duties, Bird once more took to the treadmill of writing letters and pressing flesh to get free stuff, favours, and intravenous injections of cold, hard, folding, if you can't scratch a window with it, I don't accept it, cash. Bird sought and received the loan of a Barclay Grow T8P1 airframe from its Chicago-based owners. The Barclay Grow company kicked off in 1937 to build a simple but rugged twin-engine transport aircraft. It looked a lot like the Lockheed 10 of the era, which in turn looked a lot like a Beach 18 of the era, but differed from its optical synonyms in a patented geodetic structure applied in the wing, making it very strong while very light, but also relatively expensive to fabricate and difficult to repair if you did damage it. Only 11 examples came off the production line, and at $37,000, scoring one at no cost constituted a considerable boon for Bird. But association with the expedition did nothing for the fortunes of the Barclay Grow Company. The fixed landing gear, part of the design brief aimed at ruggedness and ease of field maintenance, didn't impress potential buyers in an age where retractable undercarriage improved speed, fuel efficiency and looks. Barclay Grow became part of Avco and then Volte. The T8P1 design and its patented wing went on the shelf, never to go back into production, though pilots associated with the design, particularly in bush flying in Canada, rank its utility and ruggedness highly. Mounted on Edo float gear, Bird intended using it to scout from the ships as a pathfinder through the pack, and in seeking the best base sites after arriving at the general locales for West Base and East Base. Paul Seipel, by then a PhD and Bird's trusted second, stipulated that the winter quarters had to be operated dry. His previous experience with alcoholic dorm mates in the stressful winter dark at Little America's 1 and 2 made him resolute on the matter, and anyone looking for the large caches of medicinal champagne and whiskey taken aboard the Bear and the City of New York before that would come away thirsty. Bird requested one of the Navy's new, consolidated PBY, long-range and tough-as-old-boots patrol flying boats, later named Catalinas. Instead of giving this politically promoted show pony one of its newest and best airframes, the Navy provided two Curtis Condors, the same model of lumbering biplanes made of headwinds and parasite drag I derided in episode 88 as only going south with Bird because he couldn't afford Douglas or Boeing's new designs, where Curtis was willing to sell him his heavy lifter on the cheap because no one else was buying them. The Navy purchased their two Condors for use as 12-seat executive transports, but rapidly switched over to Douglas' game-changing, aviation history-making, most important airframe of the 20th century, DC-3, known as R-4Ds in the US Navy service, for their transport needs the Condors suddenly becoming an anachronistic albatross around the procurement officers' necks until a rapidly organised expedition gave them an excuse to offload them onto Bird with the bonhomic endorsement that the William Horlick served him well, according to his public lectures and the book and the film of his previous expedition. And these Condors, only five years old, featured supercharged engines and came with the fully tested versions of the variable pitch propellers the William Horlick had to discard because of stress fracture concerns stymieing Bird's plan to cross the continent. So these ones were even better. Zowie. 
and they were probably only driven on Sundays, and would you like the rust-proofing while we're about it? Two condors of an even better model than you took south last time. What an improvement, Admiral Bird. And no, you can't have a PBY, you asshole. Most of that was made up, but I'm certain something similar arose from the throat of a naval officer eager to write off two useless airframes while biting his thumb at a naval pariah, albeit a well-connected and influential one. A masterful quartermasterly directive. Seeking to save money at every opportunity, Bird asked that the expedition artist, Leland Curtis, work in an honorary capacity and that all art supplies be donated by suppliers eager to support the drive to enhance Bird's, I mean, <clears throat> America's international reputation as an Antarctic force to be reckoned with. Donations came in from over a hundred firms, two of the largest contributors being William Horlick, once more, and Charles L. Walgreen of the drugstore franchise. Expedition photographers Arthur Carroll and Ennis Helm brought all their own equipment and materials, including the first colour negative films taken south, and while on the books as employees, received only a dollar a year for their efforts. Some accounts cite the sum as ten dollars a year, but either way, it's three-fifths of fuck all. I'm guessing that photographers are particularly tired of hearing, but think of the exposure, when called on to supply their talent free. On his return from Little America 2, Thomas Poulter took up as the scientific director of the Armour Institute of Technology, named after the guy who donated the funds that started the school and not because it made tanks, which I thought for a long time and only disabused myself of in preparing my notes for this episode. I thought it made tanks because while Poulter was there, it produced the snow cruiser, Penguin 1, something I can find no reference to in documentation promoting what is now the Illinois Institute of Technology, and perhaps you'll understand why they don't cry about it when we address how it performed in the role Poulter helped design it for. The snow cruiser looked fucking cool, combining the best of Art Deco lines with Jerry Anderson-style detailing and a colour scheme and pinstriping to die for. It was a monster machine, 35 tonnes unladen and powered by two 11-litre diesel engines in a diesel-electric system that powered motors driving the four wheels, mounted flush with its 17-metre-long, 6-metre-wide chassis, itself undergirded by sledge runners for use on downhill grades and in crossing crevasses. The wheels, 3 metres in diameter, independently steerable and powered, and heated by exhaust bleed to prevent the rubber becoming brittle in the extreme cold, were mounted on hydraulic systems that could raise or lower the chassis to clear obstructions, or retract into their wheel-well arches to better cross crevasses up to 15 feet wide, giving the behemoth an overall height of between 5 metres and 4 metres, depending on how cool you want to look while out snow cruising. The driver's cab peeked over the bluff bow of the machine, perched to top like a ship's bridge, and larger than some apartments I've lived in. The interior volume of the vehicle not turned over to fuel, two spare tyres, engines and the inline wheel housings offered living quarters for four, featuring a combination galley, mess, darkroom, a chart room, and a machine shop, for use by the occupants slated to live inside it for a year on the supplies packed into every spare nook and cranny. It really looks like it came from the retro future, and I've yet to see diesel punk artists and sculptors 
come up with anything remotely as cool looking as Polter's machine. It's just a pity that, well, we'll get to that because it's an important part of the story and not entirely a pity in terms of international outcomes for Antarctica. Poulter presented his designs for the snow cruiser to the Growing Antarctic Project Committee on April 29, 1939. I think he'd already been working on the plans, having back of the napkin an outline while in Antarctica and struggling with the mechanical challenges of petrol-powered half-tracks in the Winter Dark rescue mission to advanced base. And the Armour Institute stood ready to lay the keel, so to speak. The USASA committee saw the machine as a boon. The alleged go-anywhere design and the range promised by its large fuel tanks offered scope for the expedition to send a party anywhere on the continent. Fitted with an aircraft on the roof, the field team could scout the best route for the snow cruiser and extend the expedition's overall reach by aerial survey from the most remote sites the snow cruiser carried it to. They could even send the snow cruiser to the South Pole and treat it as a research station. We'll take one but only on loan from the Armour Institute, because at 300000 US dollars, that's a pricey meatball. I have found pricings that indicate it only cost half as much as that, and I can't spot if the author putting that figure forward didn't factor in funds supplied from outside the Armour Institute, or if my other sources are blowing the price out for effect. Either way, it wasn't the price Bird loved most, free being favourite and cheap a close second. Funding delays and design revisions prevented anyone lighting a welding torch or punching a rivet until the 8th of August. Poulter's team at the Army Institute must have caned themselves because 11 weeks later, on the 24th of October, the engines fired up for the first time and the test drive also served as the first leg in the thousand-mile road trip from Chicago to Boston. Low bridges, narrow roads and overhead telegraph lines complicated the already slow journey of a machine only capable of 30 miles an hour on flat and unobstructed spaces, and a steering malfunction caused a three-day delay when the monster departed the Lincoln Highway in Ohio and came to rest in a small stream, requiring locomotive writing equipment brought to the site to get things moving again. Even when working with all systems go, the snow cruiser's large size and low speed snarled up the pre-freeway road network causing traffic jams as much as 20 miles long and involving as many as 70,000 vehicles. If US Navy radio man Joseph Daigle, who sailed aboard the Bear during the USASAE, constitutes a reliable source, this journey is the source of the story of the small child watching the adults contemplating how to get a large and heavy vehicle over a low overpass blocking the vehicle's path, and suggesting, Hey mister, why don't you let the air out of the tyres? leading to much adult chagrin and a successful passage beneath the former blockage. Finally arriving in Boston on the 13th of November, the snow cruiser was one of the last articles taken aboard the North Star, crawling onto the lazarette hatch under its own power and through the cunning use of the tide. The naval engineers on hand wanted it left behind, as the massive weight set high on the ship shrank the North Star's writing moment and placed the vessel at risk of turning turtle if faced by large waves, such as you might expect to find on an ocean, for example. But Bird wouldn't hear of it because he'd rather risk men and machines the maritime doom than break an advantageous contract with lots of potential PR mileage. And if the snow cruiser did make it to the pole and set up shop as an American research station there through the winter, 
or traversed between West and East Base, there was a chance American interests could oust all previous claims based on fleeting flights or brief and miserable sledging visits. With the spare tyre housing removed from the rear section, the monstrous machine fit neatly over the lazarette, spanning the ship from beam to beam. Ambitiously stowed within, among the meals ready to eat, the sleeping bags, and the fin nescu, lay several thousand first-day covers embossed with the phrase, The snow cruiser reaches the South Pole, awaiting franking at that remote bastion, and thereby becoming the premier collector's item among the philately set promising a tidy return to undercut the Army Institute of Technology's investment in designing, making and delivering the machine. This philatelic gambit held scope to conflict with the State Department's intention to establish post offices at the continental bases, but at the late stage in the expedition preparations that the issue came to light, everyone involved decided it best just to pretend not to know about it. I'd love to get a hold of one of those for the stamp collector in my life. So... So many layers of story in a single artefact. Six tracked vehicles on loan from the Department of War. Two M2A2 tanks and two T3E4 artillery tractors and two three-ton international harvester tractors. Already lay stowed in the North Star's hold, expected to do the shoreside hauling and short-distance excursions from the bases while simultaneously gathering data on cold condition operations for a military-industrial complex yet to test its metal and its metal at high latitudes. The M2A2 was the US Army's main light tank in its infantry units between the wars, but the Spanish Civil War demonstrated tanks armed only with machine guns, even the really heavy calibre machine guns, weren't much chop in battle, and the more heavily armed M2A4 made the M2A2 redundant giving the Army a similar opportunity to that afforded the Navy and its Condors to strike useless equipment from its books while looking alert and helpful. The light tanks sent south were made even lighter by the removal of their turrets, weaponry and armour. One of the Curtis Condors went aboard the North Star, while the other was sent to Valparaiso in Chile in the care of Assistant Aircraft Mechanic William Pullen. Unlike the William Horlick before them, the wings were removed and stowed for the entire transit south. Byrd's decision to let the Curtis Bird spread its full span over the gunnels of the Jakob Rupert during his previous expedition, almost leaving him without a long-distance heavy lifter. See episode 88. Also unlike the William Horlick, these naval condors were painted a jaunty orange, or it might be red. Colour differentiation isn't my strong suit, and the colour film of the era is grainy and low saturation. Either way, a colour in that part of the spectrum was deemed more likely to show against snow or ice than other colours, and so constituted a safety measure against accidents leaving injured or stranded crew invisible in the Great White South. While Bird blathered to reporters that the USA intended occupying its eastern and western research stations for five and perhaps even six years, the North Star departed Boston on the 15th of November, heading for Philadelphia to collect a beach staggerwing aircraft to mount atop the snow cruiser, and then on to Dunedin via Pitcairn Island and Rapa Island, where a dearth of ship visits in recent months led to an unusual conversation of gesticulations and schoolboy French between tank driver Anthony Morency and the island's governor, who was surprised to find his tiny French colony was at war with Nazi Germany 
and had been for several months. The Staggerwing selected to ride atop the snow cruiser and to make aerial route scouting flights for same, comprised a single-engine aircraft named for its unusual biplane configuration, featuring the lower wing pushed forward of the upper wing, a design gambit geared to null the interference drag experienced in biplanes built with the upper wing forward of the lower one. Explaining that any further would require I go into the centre of lift on an asymmetrical cross-section airfoil, and that's more aerodynamic theory than any historical podcast warrants. And later wind tunnel modelling demonstrated the reverse stagger didn't actually do much to reduce interference drag anyway. But the upshot was a beautiful design and a fast ride for its day. The beach staggerwing is often referred to as the Gates Learjet of the 1930s by people getting their causality back to front. But I understand what they mean. It was used as an executive transport because it was stylish and high performance and expensive. And if airframes held sentience, it might have shocked this one to learn of its eventual use in hauling seal carcasses about an ice landscape to the benefit of dogs. Mind the plush leather upholstery while you're at it. The bear threw off lines on the 22nd. Each successive sailing received fewer column inches than the previous one and nothing ever approaching the feverish coverage of Bird's previous outings. The North Star only received a picture and a half column in the New York Times, and that arose on page 48, in one of Bird's previously most supportive publications. Compared to the dozen stowaways and the eventually successful four attempts of Billy Gavronsky a decade prior, no one tried to sneak aboard Bird's new project. For the third time, Byrd headed up the largest Antarctic expedition ever, with 125 men, 55 of whom would winter below the circle, and somewhere between 130 and 160 dogs, depending on whose account you read. And I suspect some of the high-end counts add in the names of dogs born once in Antarctica. The North Star departed Boston on the 26th of November and passed through Miami and Havana, en route to join the Bear in Panama. Paul Seipel, Al Wade, Thomas Poulter and Richard Black taught Antarctica school six nights a week aboard the North Star, old hands preparing their underlings for what lay in store at journey's end. During daylight hours, those not crewing the ship looked to the health of their dogs, constructed sledges and practised sextant navigation. I know what Paul Seipel looks like, but I keep seeing Ed Norton in Moonrise Kingdom, as I picture this floating Boy Scout camp, and I love it. Cycle's growing on me as the series progresses. Several familiar faces went south among the human complement. Ice pilot Bendik Johansson was, alongside Paul Cycle, a veteran of both previous bird Antarctic expeditions. Lieutenant Commander Isaac Ike Schlossbach Naval Renaissance man wearing both wings and dolphins, veteran of Little America 2 and of Wilkins' attempted submarine adventure beneath Arctic sea ice, and second in command and chief pilot during the McGregor expedition to the north of Ellesmere Island, joined as chief engineer aboard the North Star. Clay Bailey joined once more as a radio operator. Vernon Boyd went back for seconds as machinist, and Louis P. Colombo again signed on as Boyd's assistant mechanic. Newfoundlander and Grand Banks Fisher 
Jack Percy, one of the more experienced dog drivers at Little America 1, reprised the role for Little America 3. Richard Black and Finn Ronnie already received mention as returnees, but they were joined at East Base by Little America 2 veteran Joseph Healy from the Department of the Interior as a dog driver. Bird once more sailed with Frederick Dustin as his aide-de-camp aboard the Bear. The Navy assigned Lieutenant Richard Cruzen as skipper aboard the Bear, while Captain Listad commanded the North Star. Chief Machinist's mate Ash Snow joined as pilot for the Barclay Grow, with Radio Man First Class Earl Purse as co-pilot, and Sadiq Collier and William Pullen as Chief and Assistant Aircraft Mechanics for East Base. Naval Aviator James McCoy and Marine Corps Aviator Walter Giles would stay on at West Base as pilots, joined by physiologist Dr Ernest Lockhart. Army Carpenter Raymond Chuck O'Connor was also heading for West Base. Harrison Richardson attended a lecture given by Bird at his college while a freshman and felt inspired to join his future expedition. He wrote to the Rear Admiral and was accepted, likely with a little help from Daddy, who was a trustee at the college Bird spoke at, coming aboard the Bear as a general hand. He impressed both Bird and Seipel during the voyage south, such that he landed a berth at West Base, becoming the youngest resident at Little America 3, and working as a dog driver and met observer. Two cadastral engineers, Glenn Dyer and Leonard Berlin, joined the expedition from the Department of the Interior. A cadaster is a set of records denoting who owns what land and what that land is worth, and is used to work out how much tax the owner owes the government based on that land value and area. The inclusion of cadastral surveyors underlines how seriously the US government took the expedition's territorial ambitions. Any old surveyor can tell you where a mountain peak is and how high it reaches. Cadastral surveyors can tell you who owns that mountain, what that mountain is worth, and how much tax the mountain owner owes the IRS. In a coincidence that tickles me in the tickly place in my brain, I first came across the concept of a cadaster when my office mate, Paul Bruin, worked on the Wellington City Council's cadastral database as his first job after finishing his studies at the University of Otago. I've mentioned before that he's presently in the Falkland Islands, and I'm pleased to report that I finally caught up with him there in late 2018. You've got a pretty sweet caper going on in beautiful surrounds, and I intend returning to spend more than the brief three-hour catch-up we enjoyed, whether or not I get back into the Antarctic tourism industry. Love your guts, Paul. And the rest of you is okay too. Two of Elton Wade's former students went south, geologist Charlie Passel going to West Base, while Paul Knowles, who wasn't the Casanova killer, who wouldn't be born for another six years, went to East Base. East Base tank drivers were Anthony Montmorency and Clarence Steele, which is as good a name for a tank driver as I've ever come across. Robert Palmer went to East Base as Assistant Meteorologist and Supply Officer, and likely used his time in the South to work on his being addicted to love. Biologist Herwell McClure Bryant and ornithologist Carl Eklund joined for service at East Base. Lewis Sims joined as East Base Medical Doctor. 
While it might seem unusual to highlight a ship's steward and cook's mate for mention, George Gibbs, one of 40 sailors selected from the 2000 expedition applicants from among the US Navy's other ranks, became the first African-American to visit Antarctica. He sailed aboard the Bear and impressed Lieutenant Cruzen with his zeal and initiative, twice receiving official citations for same. He recorded in his diary that two of Cruzen's junior officers held his race against him and tried to cause him trouble, but the cut of his jib saw him promoted to officer's cook third class by the end of his two voyages south, and Rear Admiral Byrd, inherently racist as fuck in his rich, privileged Virginian heart, but always quick to spot solid PR opportunities, welcomed him ashore as the first black man on the continent when Gibbs helped moor up the bear on the Bay of Wales shore. Of significant personal interest to me among the East Base contingent is dog driver Joseph Healy. Besides serving in the same role at Little America 2, he holds my attention because I've twice travelled in company with his nephew, Joe, named after his uncle. Dog driving is still part of the family tradition, and the living Joe Healy kindly gave me digital copies of his uncle's diaries and accompanying press clippings in one of those moments where I realised I wasn't just speaking into the podcasting void. It's really touching when someone finds my project of sufficient merit that they entrust me with documents that open my eyes wider than my books full of second-hand volumes and overdue library... that open my eyes wider than my shelves full of second-hand volumes and overdue library books. So thanks, Joe. Next time we meet, I would like to interview you about your uncle, your family association with the doggos, and your own path to Antarctica. Speaking of the doggos and familiar faces, in addition to the 43 Alaskan Malamutes already aboard the North Star when it reached Boston, Ronnie ordered and received an additional 73 Huskies from Chinook Kennels in New Hampshire, sold by Arthur Walden after his experiences at Little America, and renamed by the new owners in honour of Walden's favourite dog, whose disappearance from winter quarters caused Walden such distress. Ronnie's recommendations about the type, size and grade of dogs to be accepted from the Chinook Kennels wasn't properly heeded by Paul Seipel when it came time for handover, and some underweight and undersized animals of no breed Ronnie recommended came aboard, largely because the new owners of the kennel threatened to shoot all of the dogs if the Motley Mutleys weren't accepted as part of the transaction. On seeing some of the less-than-stellar animals for the first time, Bird gave Seipel a dressing down. Seipel tried to throw Ronnie under the bus, but Ronnie produced the documentation demonstrating what parameters he had sent to the kennel and reposted that Seipel accepted the dog-end dogs and paid the requested extra fee for them. Nice try, Boy Scout, but you clearly didn't get the merit badge for buck-passing. But that places you higher in my regard than your mentor, who was a champion buck-passer. Bird charged Ronnie with sourcing more dogs, and at short notice, he brought in some Baffin Island and Labrador, the place, not the breed, stock. Ronnie wanted 180 dogs, but the ships couldn't kennel that many without excessive fighting breaking out in the limited space available on the weather decks. The dogs, some of which experienced two transits through the Panama Canal and long periods in the tropics, fared better than those on the sea voyages of many past expeditions, with no distemper outbreak and no deaths due to parasites. One dog that went overboard is the only death in transit I can account. George Dufek, 
sailed as navigation officer under Cruzen. His first excursion to a continent he would come to hold a national association with, almost every bit as strong as that which Richard Byrd held in the minds of his fellow Americans. The first challenge to the expedition through Cruzen, after throwing off lines, was training his crew into the use of sails, few of them having trained into the old arts during their cadetships. The Bear's recently installed diesel engine provided more horsepower for less fuel than the steam unit it replaced, but the masts and rigging, originally sufficient to propel the stalwart Arctic veteran on their own, still offered valuable additional push. Once the crew were trained into sailing in string, the ship could make eight knots under full sail with a tailwind. When the Bear reached Panama, it received both Bird and the Barclay Grow airframe, and Bird received official instructions from President Roosevelt. Concerned at the ructions the expedition already stirred up in other antarctically minded nations, Roosevelt ordered Bird to establish East Base on Charco Island and West Base on the eastern shore of the Ross Sea. With East Base lying outside the Falkland Islands Dependency and West Base outside the Ross Dependency, the USASA would skirt direct confrontation with Commonwealth Antarctic interests, though with East Base lying within the overlapping territorial claims of Argentina and Chile, they weren't giving all possible international friction a swerve. The stated goal of the expedition became the mapping of Hearstland, Ellsworth Land and Marie Birdland, ostensibly preventing the USASA from treading on other nations' toes, but conditional modifiers in the wording of the orders allowed Bird carte blanche if he found a half-decent excuse to do whatever he wanted with his resources once in the South. A key stipulation required that no one should seek permission from other nations or nationals to act in any space or in any capacity in Antarctica, as even tacit recognition of existing territorial claims might trip up the US sustained position that no one held valid sovereignty over any part of the continent. Additionally, any USASAE activity that might explicitly support a subsequent US territorial claim in Antarctica were to remain secret until such a time as the State Department decided to announce said claim to the press. Additionally, additionally, all names applied to geographic features must represent United States present or historical Antarctic persons of importance. No more wives and sweethearts cast about the landscape. Additionally, 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 all officers were required to keep journals, and all journals and diaries, photographs, films, drawings and paintings generated by all hands were to be collected and held by the USASI and the only written history of the expedition was to come from Bird and Bird alone to be published under the supervision of the USAS executive. Besides always relying on a ghostwriter to get his copy together this likely suited Bird just fine and saved him the bother of stealing or ordering stolen the journals of anyone he thought might paint his leadership in a bad light. Call back to episode 77 wherein I recounted The Ballad of Dean Smith's Diary. FDR also required that Byrd return to the USA in the northern spring of 1940. Lyle Rose speculates mildly that Byrd may have requested that inclusion. But whatever the motive behind the order, Byrd would not winter with Seipel at West Base or with Black at East Base. He was needed at home for some reason or another, not mapped out in the documentation, and I see that as all positive for those staying on the ice too. A telegram from the State Department also arrived outlining the method for territorial claiming ceremonies 
and the exact wording to be applied in a deposited account of those claiming events, whether on the ground and saluting Old Glory run up a flagpole, or holding the flag unfurled in the cabin of an aircraft at altitude. Duplicate copies of the deposited, or in the case of aviation-based claims, biffed out the window, claiming documentation, were to be kept by the leader of any party engaged in such work, and kept secret, even by Bird, until otherwise directed by the State Department. Where the bear headed straight for the Bay of Wales, the North Star stopped in at Wellington just before New Year's, expeditioners enjoying a three-day visit in that most welcoming and picturesque of cities, and stopped in Dunedin for the customary final lading with fuel and freshies, departing Otago Harbour on the 3rd of January. The Ross Sea let the ships through more readily than any previous expedition, and the North Star reached the barrier at Kainan Bay on the 11th of January. Paul Seipel directed they head east, hoping to put ashore at Okuma Bay, but the barrier edge there proved too tall for unloading. The ship returned to Kainan Bay, and dog teams and skiers set inland to scout for a base site. Swell saw the ship stand off overnight, but on the 13th, Seipel decided Kainan Bay would serve, and dead men went into the barrier surface to receive mooring lines from the North Star. Both ships lay alongside the barrier by mid-January. And it's there we'll leave part one of our coverage of the USASA. Greetings this episode to Sharon, whose empathy and compassion have been a source of great succour for those lucky enough to count her among their friends in difficult times, and whose sense of humour and razor wit never fail to entertain. Take care and appreciate your coffee.